Welcome to the Russian Rulers Podcast, Episode 46, Leading by Example. Last time, Catherine began to solidify her grip on power, and both her husband, Peter III, and the ill-fated Ivan VI were, shall we say, dispatched. To call someone great, you need to have before you not only a person with intellect, some luck and good timing, you need someone with a whole lot of guts willing to take major chances. As we recounted over the past few episodes, Catherine had it, and she had it in spades. But what she does next is leading through a brave act, although it scared the hell out of everyone around her. Throughout human history, one of the scourges which ravaged populations was the dreaded disease smallpox. If it didn't kill you, and back in Catherine's time, its kill rate was about 30 to 35 percent, with an estimated 400,000 Europeans dying each year in the 18th century, it would leave painful and permanent scars. With no cure and no real understanding of the reason for the disease, all were fearful of it, even royalty, as Peter III had contracted the disease which left him badly scarred and it did kill Tsar Peter II. Vaccines were unheard of in that time until Sir Thomas Dimsdale became somewhat famous in England for his, for smallpox. A Londoner, he was summoned to St. Petersburg to inoculate not some commoner or inmate to prove its value and usefulness, but he was there to vaccinate none other than Empress Catherine. She had wanted to mandate it for the people, but her advisors warned her that the people would blame her for any deaths, whether they were caused by the inoculation or not. So she decided to lead by example. Immediately, Grigory Orlov had himself vaccinated as well. Days went by, with most of the court sure that a funeral was in the making. When the appropriate period of waiting was over, and Catherine and Grigory were still okay, Everyone wanted the vaccine, as smallpox had been ravaging the countryside for months. This is an example of how Catherine was able to overturn superstitions and fear of change among the nobles and aristocracy by taking the lead and almost embarrassing them to change their ways. With this out of the way, the Empress pushed forward with her rapid reforms. She created an academy for the cadet corps, an institute for noble young ladies, along with many more institutions. But lest you think she was magnanimous to all parts of society, think again. She laid down more restrictions on the rights of the serfs by giving their owners more rights to do with them as they pleased. One ordinance after another was handed down, with one particularly onerous one allowing the landowner to send a serf to forced labor away from the land as they saw fit. Some, what I would call royal apologists, would argue that the serfs were really not slaves in the same sense as the African Americans were before the Civil War, because they were owned, whereas the serfs were just bonded to the land. But semantics aside, the truth is, the difference is all a mirage. Russian serfs were slaves, pure and simple and their lot was getting worse, which would lead to the greatest peasant revolt in Russian history. But we'll get to that 
next episode. The court at St. Petersburg was more extravagant than even Elizabeth's, challenging the one in France under Louis XIV. But it didn't revolve around the Empress. She spread it around to all the nobles, courtiers, and foreign dignitaries. Parties, balls, concerts, plays, and comedies happened daily in a planned manner. From the book of, by Troyat, he lays out the daily routines. Quote, Each day of the week was marked by a particular event. Sunday, court. Monday, French comedy. Tuesday, nothing. Wednesday, Russian comedy. Thursday, French tragedy. Friday, masked ball at the palace. And Saturday, nothing. In her correspondence with some of the great minds of Europe and in the parlors of St. Petersburg, Catherine dreamed of projects to dive into. One was the building of a museum, which she discussed with her hermitage, or little committee. It was from here the idea for the famous hermitage museum comes from. Her correspondence, of which we have many samples, were with people like Voltaire, Diderot, D'Alembert, and Grimm, all of whom she showered in money. Voltaire once wrote, wrote quote, Diderot, D'Alembert, and I, we are three who would build you altars. Would one ever have suspected, fifty years ago, that one day the Scythians would so noble recompense in Paris? the virtue, science, and philosophy that are treated so shamefully among us. Grimm added, Thirty years of labor have not brought Diderot the smallest recompense. It has pleased the Empress of Russia on this occasion to pay the debt of France. The next monumental job before Catherine was the complete overhaul of the Oulogne first laid down by Alexis I in 1649, with small changes being made by Peter the Great, Catherine I, Peter II, and Anna Ivanova. Instead of asking for help from her advisors, the Empress went at, went at it alone, with her influence coming from three men, Voltaire, Montesquieu, and Beccaria, whose work, Essay on Crime and, Publishment and Punishment, published in 1764, is a classic. To again quote Troyat, he writes about the 655-paragraph work, Instruction, by Catherine. Quote, in every line, Catherine appealed to charity, equity, patriotism, reason. But the flock had to move toward happiness in an orderly fashion, under the crook of a muscular shepherdess. She alone knew what her sheep needed, firmness and gentleness. She was a champion of monarchy, but did not wish to be accused of tyranny. To her, autocracy did not mean despotism, but love. Generously, she urged the rich not to oppress the poor, invade against torture, condemn the death penalty, except in cases of political crimes, and proclaimed that peoples were not created for sovereigns, but sovereigns for people. Now, this did not stop her from declaring herself in favor of the prerogatives of the nobility, or from stating that persons should be reduced to slavery only for good reason. Thus, serfdom was not abolished. Instead, it was recommended that serfs be treated humanely. 
and international liberalism was modified by national empiricism. European theories were served up with a Russian sauce. Despite the inconsistencies in this work, to which Catherine applied herself for more than a year, it bore witness to her courage, tenacity, and sincere desire for change. Her legislomania, as she called it, was not lacking in greatness. Now, once done with this massive project, she ordered the Senate in 1766 to convene a grand commission to be formed to bring together representatives from the Senate, the Holy Synod, the administrative colleges, the nobles, townspeople, and peasants. All in all, over 1,400 people came, although this was far less than Catherine expected. The problem with the Grand Commission is that it expected the Russian people to put together grievances and ideas to change the way Russia was run, and that was impossible given the centuries of autocratic rule that the country endured with criticism being punishable by death or worse, torture. No one knew what to do. They were petrified by the thought of coming up with an idea or a suggestion that would contradict the empress or her agents. This caused the whole commission to be run by Catherine's people, or as the French chargé d'affaires Rosignol said, quote, a farce. It is the empress's favorites and trusted agents who run everything, who read the laws aloud so rapidly or in such a low voice that one can hardly hear them. Then they ask the approval of the assembly, which has no intention of refusing to approve something it hasn't heard, much less understood. The first task brought up by the gathered men was what title to, to bequeath to Catherine. This stymied her as she wanted actions, not pontifications, but she endured the debate, which ended with a declaration that her new title was to be Catherine the Great. They then got down to business, which was basically saying yes to whatever came to their attention. After two years of this and 200 plus meetings, the assembly was abruptly dissolved. Catherine was utterly frustrated by the lack of initiative, but she learned more about her people and their backwardness. Much work still needed to be done to get them to the place where the rest of Europe was, but that was to take a back seat as there was a more pressing problem afoot. The French had goaded Turkey and the Ottoman Empire to declare war on Russia. The Empress, for her part, was elated. What precipitated the war in the French involvement was the repression of an uprising in Poland by so-called nationalists by the Russian army. The French, who were infuriated, had their ambassador in Constantinople force the issue. They wanted Catherine overthrown, and as the Duc de Choiseul had written to the ambassador, quote, the surest way of toppling the usurper Catherine from her usurped throne would be to start a war for her. Only the Turks are in a position to render us this service. It is war by the Turks that should be the sole object of your work. A Ukrainian contingent of the army of Russia crossed the Polish border and captured the city of Bessarabia. The Sultan was infuriated and demanded that not only the army leave his territory, but they leave all of Poland. When that wasn't happening, he declared war. Now, Frederick II of Prussia thought that the two nations were nowhere near ready for battle. 
and was quoted as saying that the fight was, quote, of the blind against the paralytic. While it was true that the Russians were ill-equipped to handle a war, the Turks were in horrible shape. Battle after battle ensued with huge Turkish losses. Catherine was sure that as the war continued, she was going to liberate Constantinople and restore the orthodox rule on that region and drive back the Turks to their western borders. First Kortin, then Azov, and Taganrog were retaken, and other victories were won, some smashing. In one battle in 1770, a small force of 17,000 Russians destroyed a Turkish army estimated to be over 150,000. The news caused much rejoicing in St. Petersburg, but it brought fear and anger throughout Europe. Many were scared that Russia was becoming too powerful and would engulf all of Europe. The French were the most venomous in their verbal attack on Catherine. For her part, the Empress thought that the French and the Turks were one and the same. They just occupied different countries. While all this was going on, Catherine was putting her finishing touches on her new museum, the Hermitage. She lavishly spent hundreds of thousands of rubles on artwork from around the world. She had people like Diderot, Count Betsky, and Prince Golitsyn had a team to acquire works from artists like Rembrandt, Van Dyck, Raphael, Titien, and Veronese. She also had a massive granite block, which weighed an estimated three million pounds, moved hundreds of miles to St. Petersburg to serve as a base for the now famous Peter the Great statue. As Troyat put it, not only did little mother Catherine win the war against the Turks, she moved mountains. Catherine, while engaged in war and building, was oblivious to the troubling maturation of her son Paul, who was building a deep hatred for his mother. He blamed her for the murder of his father and believed that she was eventually going to kill him. He was not only paranoid, but he was way angry. This was to play itself out when he became Tsar. But the person that Paul hated the most was Grigory Orlov, who was, though, slowly losing his position in the court of Catherine. Grigory was 34, and Catherine was now 40. She still cared deeply about her lover, but she was not as enamored of him as in the past. He felt that he needed one more heroic act to get back into her good graces. Then news came that Moscow was in the grips of the Black Plague, which was killing hundreds of people a day, leading to mass panic. Orlov raced to the town, and with his usual style and panache, got hold of things and proceeded to calm the situation, and gave orders to ban public gatherings, stop the kissing of icons, and burn the clothes of the victims. Quickly, the plague abated, but it didn't seem to matter to Catherine. Things between them had drifted too far apart to repair. Then another opportunity was given to Grigori, as the heads of states of many of the European nations clamored for peace between Russia and Turkey. Orlov was sent with distinct instructions as to how to negotiate a treaty, which he proceeded to completely ignore. Catherine was infuriated, but she tempered her anger with the memories of her time with Orlov. She had to cautiously remove him from the situation and change his status within the court. He resigned himself to the situation 
and a few years later married his fifteen-year-old cousin and took to traveling throughout Europe. Catherine, for her part, took on another young lover, one Alexander Vasilchikov, who was only twenty-eight, fifteen years younger than the Empress. While it caused quite a stir in the court, Catherine took no mind to the criticisms and went on her merry way. The next order of business was finding a proper bride for her son, Paul. She sent messages to Frederick II of Prussia for suggestions, and he quickly responded with the daughters of Landgravine of Hesse-Darmstadt. After sending for the three girls, Paul and his mother made their choice just days after their arrival, Wilhelmina. Catherine had flashbacks to her early days when she was presented to Elizabeth and was aghast at how Peter looked at the time. Paul was the spitting image of his father, leading one to believe that he really was his son and not Grigory Orloff's. Parties ensued, celebrating the engagement. The date of the wedding was set for September 29, 1773. What was old was new in Catherine's mind. She had just been in the same place 28 years before. Wilhelmina was rechristened Natalia, and she, like Catherine those almost three decades prior, had to dream of being empress while being married to the ugly and boorish Paul. Denis Diderot, now 60, a long-time correspondent with Catherine, decided now was the time to make a trek out to Russia to meet with his benefactor. Starting in May 1773, he made out from Paris, reaching St. Petersburg on September 28th, the day before the royal wedding. He was awakened by the firing of cannons and the pealing of bells, but he was unperturbed as he was there to see the Empress. Next week, we will cover the discussion of Catherine and Diderot, wrapping up the war with the Turks, and we will talk about the greatest peasant revolt in Russian history, the Pugachev Rebellion. Now, for this week in Russian history, for the week of April 24th through the 30th. In 1642, Dmitry Pozharsky, one of the heroes of the Times of Troubles, the Russian prince, died. Count Pyotr Ivanovich Panin, the Russian soldier, passed away. In 1818, Tsar Alexander II of Russia was born. In 1877, the Russian Empire declares war on the Ottoman Empire. In 1926, the Treaty of Berlin is signed. Germany and the Soviet Union each pledge neutrality in the event of an attack on the other by a third party for the next five years. And in 2007, Boris Yeltsin's funeral, the first to be sanctioned by the Russian Orthodox Church for head of state since the funeral of Emperor Alexander III in 1894. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Uh, don't forget to visit the website at russianrulers.podhoster.com or really, become a Facebook friend at Russian Rulers History Podcast. Don't forget to download the iPhone app at the iTunes Store for Russian Rulers History Podcast. And when you're at Facebook or on the website, leave a comment, make a suggestion, ask a question. And as always, das vidanya i spasiba bolshoya.